think for a moment about that little story in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John where Jesus stopped at the well and the woman came out to draw water from the well. Now this was something she did every day, maybe more than once a day. It was a very insignificant act. It was just part of life. And yet for her, it turned into the most significant moment of her whole life. It changed her life. And not only changed her life, but you remember she went back into the, into the little town there, told her neighbors and her friends, and they came out. And then later they said, we came because of what she said, but now that we have heard you, we believe. An insignificant moment, an insignificant action in which the most significant thing in life takes place. I remember when the men were fishing, Peter and James and John and Andrew, and they had been working all night. Now they were washing their nets, a very insignificant thing for fishermen to do. They did it all the time. And Jesus comes along, and he's talking to this crowd, and when he finishes, he talks to them personally, remember? And you remember what happened to Peter? After they caught so many fish, they couldn't bring them into the boat, and the boats were sinking because there were so many fish. And Peter runs, and he falls at Jesus' knees, and he says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And Jesus looks at him, and he says, Peter, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, because from here on, you are going to be impacting the lives of men. A very insignificant moment in which God spoke in a very significant way. Let me tell you about another circumstance. It happened in a kitchen, in my cousin's kitchen. And she was peeling potatoes. Now that's, that's not a very spiritual act. And yet, I want to tell you, she was a spirit-filled potato peeler. Because as we were standing there, she looked at me and she said, George, wouldn't you like to receive Jesus as your Savior? And you know, God had been working in my life before that. I'd never said anything to anybody, and no one had ever asked me. But in that moment, in that kitchen, with a spirit-filled potato peeler, God did something unusual, and I came to know the Lord Jesus as my personal Savior, because my cousin asked me. Now, what I want to talk to you about this morning is that that's exactly what God wants to use you for. I want you to turn with me, if you will, to the ninth chapter of Matthew. Beginning with verse 36, we have this beautiful little scene that communicates to us the importance of what I've just been trying to illustrate. 
It says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were, they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Would you join me in a moment of prayer? Father, many of us here this morning can identify with those moments in which we were doing something very commonplace, very insignificant, and graciously you touched our lives. And as we consider this, this passage, and as we consider the burden that was on the heart of the Lord Jesus, that caused him to have compassion on these people, on these crowds that he saw. And his request that we pray for workers. Lord, I ask that you would help us to understand what that means. And then in whatever way you want for us to be willing to be workers to accomplish your purposes. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I think that we have, many of us, a wrong understanding of what it is when Jesus says, the harvest is plenteous, pray the Lord will send workers into his harvest. We, we think in terms of the harvest field because we've been, we've been told this so many times that the harvest field is in countries like Africa or Latin America or Asia where the need is so great and so few people are there to tell them about Jesus. And somehow, this concept of a vision for the world takes a giant leap from Albuquerque to Kenya or from Albuquerque to Madras or from Albuquerque to Sao Paulo or wherever it might be. And we think in terms of that being the field and there's where workers are needed. The field, Jesus said, in another passage in Matthew 13, Jesus said, the field is the world. Now, the world begins where I am, doesn't it? It's not out there. It's where I am. That is my world. That is your world. And when Jesus says, that the need is in the world. Let's be faithful to look at the world as that part that God has given to me. Those friends, those family members, those people that I work with, that's my world. That is where Jesus has placed me. And when he talks about Workers. He's not talking about specialists. That's another erroneous concept. 
back in the beginning, in the second century, someone created the concept of the clergy and the laity. The Bible doesn't talk about that. You will never, you'll never find in the New Testament any, any idea that there is that division. The clergy, the preachers, the teachers, and the laity, the common people. God's intention has always been that it is all of us, those who are gifted as teachers perhaps, but all of us are to be involved in this ministry of reaching into the harvest field, wherever that part is. Do you remember in Acts, the first chapter, verse 8, Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes, you are going to receive power. And as a result of that, you are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. To be my witnesses. Now, if you remember... In the next few chapters, the church became very big. Many people were added daily, it says, to the church. And there they were gathered together like we are this morning, and they would, they would rejoice in the teaching of the word, and they would rejoice in hearing what Jesus had taught his disciples as the disciples told them. They probably sang psalms together, just as we sing our worship songs. They, they, had, they had a regular worship service, and this went on over and over again, and, that, and that, that work grew in Jerusalem. But one day God said, you know what? You have forgotten the purpose for which I've put you here. I enjoy your worship. It's good to hear you praise me. I love to see you get together in fellowship. But you have forgotten that I said you're to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and then in Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, the people apparently didn't hear that too well. And so it says, if you look at Acts 8, the very first verse, that God allowed a persecution to come on the church. And it says, and they were all scattered abroad, except the gifted ones, except the specialists, except the apostles. All the people were scattered. And it says in verse 4, everywhere they went, they taught the word. They taught the word. It wasn't Peter and it wasn't John, and it wasn't Andrew, and it wasn't James, and it wasn't one of the others that went out doing this. It was the people that taught the Word. And that was how the Word of God began to spread. Through men and women who were willing to be spirit-filled potato peelers. Spirit-filled whatever. And being willing to share with other people the reality of what Jesus Christ had meant to them. Now, my friends, that has not changed. 
It has changed only because we have allowed it to change. And so we have a group of people like this this morning that meet Sunday after Sunday, and then we'll have another service, and then there'll be some others tonight. And here we are, we get together, and we have a good time, but somehow we have fallen into the same pattern as the church did in the first book, uh, first chapter of Acts. We've, we've allowed ourselves to become enjoyable to ourselves. And we fellowship with one another. And we have good times. But we have forgotten that Jesus said, the harvest is plenteous, but the workers, the workers are few. Workers are not specially equipped people. They're just people who are willing to work, who are willing to do whatever God puts in our hands to do, who are willing to use whatever circumstances God gives us, whatever contacts God gives us, to tell somebody else about Jesus. That's all. That's what a worker is. And that's what he said we should pray for. But if we are going to pray for workers, the first prayer has to be my own. Am I willing to be a worker? Am I willing to say to the Lord, I want to work for you. I don't even know how that's going to be. I'm not especially prepared. I don't know a whole lot of things. But I'm willing to use what I have and share it with somebody else. Am I willing to do that? Am I willing to say, Lord, I want to be a worker. I don't know what the work will be. I don't know how you want me to do it. But I'm willing to be a worker. That's what he said we should pray for. Workers that will go into the harvest field and take advantage of what God is doing. Now notice what he says. Back to the passage we looked at. Let's look at it for a while now. This passage in Matthew 9. It said he looked with compassion on the crowds. Compassion is not just pity. Pity is uh, something else. Pity is feeling sorry for somebody, and it may be genuine. We may really feel sorry for that person. But the difference between pity and compassion is that compassion makes me be willing to get involved in trying to alleviate the pain, whatever pain there might be in that other person's experience. To be willing to get involved in that life, to be willing to take the time and, and let them know I care. To be willing to pray with them. You see, we don't have to have all the answers, my friends. That's one of the things I think that keeps us from being workers sometimes. We feel that we've got to have a special course on witnessing or a special course on evangelism and somehow to be able to, to be another teacher of the Bible. That's not true. You see, in James 5.16, it says this, Confess your faults to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. One of the greatest ministries that you can have and that I can have, one of the greatest gifts that we can give to somebody is a willingness to show an interest and listen Really listen to them. 
listen to them, and pray with them. You may not be able to answer all their questions, but you can let them know that you love them, that you are interested in them, that you care for them, that you understand the struggle they're going through, and pray with them. James said, and it's true, the righteous, the effective prayer of a righteous man availeth much. You pray with them. He said, there'll be healing. Just because you listen, just because you care, just because you're willing to pray with them. Now notice what kind of people these are that Jesus had compassion on. There are two words that are used. I'm reading from the NIV. In your version, it may be a little different. But the two words are this. He looked at the crowds and he, and he saw that they were harassed and helpless. Now, if that doesn't describe our society today, I don't know what does. People are harassed. That is to say, distressed. And the reason for that is the influence of a godless society. People don't have answers for their needs today. How many people do you know, just think of it now, or you work, or in your neighborhood, or even in your own family, how many people do you know that are struggling with their marriage? They don't know what to do. They're, they're dissatisfied, or they're in conflict, or whatever it might be, but they don't know what to do. They are distressed. Many of them are ready to bail out. And about their families, their children. Parents today are probably more fearful of what is going to happen to their children growing up in this society than they have ever been in the past. There was a very interesting article in the journal last week. I cut it out. Some of you may have seen it. By a man by the name of John Rosemond. Interesting regarding this matter of what is happening in our homes and why it's happened. But parents today are, are distressed. They don't know what to do with their kids. And little ones growing up, how do we help them? How do we keep them from getting into that, that cycle that we see in our society today? Now, my friends, we have some answers for them. We have hope that we can give them in the Lord Jesus. They're harassed. They're distressed. They're caught up in any kind of, of pursuit trying to meet those needs. Materialism being one of them, you know that. People are trying to meet their needs with things, with possessions, with houses and, and automobiles and boats and, and you name it. But it's just tinsel. It just disappears. It doesn't meet the need. It fills their mind with something for a little while. It causes them to be involved in activities for a little while. But it doesn't really meet their need or give them answers. It's a society that is, that is looking for answers and doesn't know where to look. A pleasure-happy society but it doesn't meet the needs. Jesus said they're harassed. They're distressed. They don't know what to do. He said also they're helpless. 
They're, they're directionless. That's a good word. Today, you know this as well as I do, we are facing a society that is in moral anarchy. Everybody doing what is right in his own eyes. Everybody excusing their behavior and rationalizing it in one way or another. Even though it is completely immoral, they have made it sound perfectly all right. Whether it's having an affair, or whether it's living together before marriage, or whether it's simply a loose sexual experience of some kind. Moral anarchy. Ethical anarchy. If you can break the law and get away with it, it's okay. The only thing wrong with breaking the law today is if you get caught. It's not considered wrong to break the law. It's just don't get caught at it. Moral and ethical anarchy. That's what Jesus was talking about. They were harassed and they were helpless. They were caught, as we are today, in a vacuum of no answers. Now, my friends, we who have had the privilege of hearing the gospel and hearing the word of God and knowing all that God has to offer for life to make us the kind of people that he wants us to be and give us the joy that he wants us to have, you and I have some answers to these people who are lost and distressed and harassed and helpless. He also said this, and I want to encourage you with this because I believe it. He says the harvest is plentiful. It may seem strange, and you may, you may have a hard time believing this because of some of the reactions that you have gotten or think you have gotten, but there are millions of people who are responsible, responsive to the gospel today. They really are. It's just that it hasn't been presented to them in a way that is shrouded with love and wrapped up in honest caring. People will respond to the message regarding Jesus today. For years, my ministry has been seeking to reach those kinds of people. And I want to encourage you with the fact that they are responsive. But you have to take time. You have to relate to them. You have to build bridges of relationship on which you can present the truth. Take the time to care. That's what a worker does. A worker takes time to build relationships on which he can place the truth of the gospel. And Jesus is looking for people like that. Workers, not specialists. Just you and me in our commonplace experiences telling people about the Lord Jesus. You see, I've said this here before, but let me repeat it. 
Evangelism is a process. Evangelism is not, as we often think of it, that final act of helping someone make the decision. That's part of evangelism. But evangelism involves a whole process. In my life, I was born here in Albuquerque. At the age of 10, we moved to California. I had never heard the gospel presented. I knew nothing about it. We received an invitation when we got there from my cousin and her family who were attending a little mission in East Los Angeles. My sisters began to go. I did not. My father was opposed to it. He made it very clear that he didn't want anything to do with it. He called my sisters fanatics and a few other things. But they kept going. And they would talk about that. And after about a year and a half, or two years, I began attending this little mission on Thursday afternoons. On Thursday afternoons, they had what they called the Sunbeam Club. Isn't that nice? Do I look like a sunbeam? Well, I went anyway. And the reason I went, I heard they, they served punch and cookies free. And, and during the Depression, see, this was all during the Depression. We couldn't afford that. So I went. And I began hearing for the first time about Jesus and about his love. And when I was about 13 years of age, some three years later, I received the Lord, as I told you, in the kitchen of my spirit-filled potato-peeling cousin. And then about a year later, or a year and a half, my mother and father both received the Lord. But now think of it. Think of the process that there was. There is that, there is that time when when that hard ground in the life of an individual has to be broken up first. And somebody can do that with just a, a, a word of kindness, a word, an act of kindness, and, and something that lets them know that you as a Christian are interested in them. That can start breaking up the ground, that hard, hard, fallow ground that's in their lives. And then perhaps the next stage would be that somebody comes along and now that that ground has been broken up a little bit, they prepare it. You know how you have to do with a rake, break up the clods and get it all ready? Somebody else comes along and does something like that and prepares that soil. And then someone comes along and sows the seed in that soil. And that seed might be a verse that you share, a book you give, a tract that you might give them, your own testimony about what Jesus has done in your life, the seed of the truth. And that seed begins to germinate and it begins to sprout. Somebody has to come along and take care of that to make sure the weeds don't eat it up and cover it up. And all of that goes on in somebody's life. And then somebody comes along and waters that to keep it going. And that seed grows. And little by little, a plant forms. There's fruit. And then somebody has the privilege of coming along and reaping. Let me ask you a question. 
Who was involved in evangelism? All of them. Every one of them. It's a process. And I want to encourage you as a worker to just look for opportunities to get involved in those lives that you have normal contact with and, and move them toward the Lord Jesus, wherever they are. If, they're, if that soil needs breaking up, do it. If it needs preparing, do it. If it needs a seed that's sown, do it. If it needs to be tended, do it. If it needs to be watered, do it. And on and on. Perhaps the Lord will give you the opportunity of reaping. But whether or not that happens is immaterial. You are involved in evangelism when you touch lives in that process. And every one of us can do that. Think of it. Just think, if this, if this audience this morning, this group in here, if half of this group, just half, in this next week would touch one life in some way to move them toward Jesus, think of the number of people that would be touched in this city. If in this service, just half of us did it, and in the next service, just half of us did it, there would be over 3,000 people in Albuquerque that would be touched with the reality of Jesus Christ. That's what a worker does. He doesn't have to have a special gift. He doesn't have to be specially equipped. He's just a worker who is willing to do whatever has to be done in that life to move them toward Jesus Christ. And you can do that. Every one of us can do that. I have a friend in Ecuador. He's a tailor, had a third grade education. He came to know the Lord. I had the privilege of leading him to Christ. And I watched him grow and develop. He had a shop in a little village close to Quito, Ecuador, where we live, a village called Cotocoyao. People would come to him because they're not very wealthy and they only have one change of clothes. And they would come, and the men would come and maybe have a hole in their pants, and they need to have it repaired. So they'd come in, and they'd take their pants off, and he'd give them a blanket to wrap up in, and they'd sit there. And he could pretty well time his repair as long as he wanted. And while he was working on their pants, he would tell them about Jesus. Do you know that in that town today there's an evangelical church because of the testimony of Eliseo Chamorro, who just was a worker. He wasn't a fancy teacher. He wasn't especially equipped in any way. He simply took the opportunity that he had to tell people about Jesus. That's what God wants you to do just to be that kind of a worker. Just to start out the day and say, all right, Lord, today I'm going to the office or going to the store where I work or I'm going to school or, or whatever it is you do. And I want to be a worker for you. I want to be alert to allow you to use me to just touch one life in some way, wherever they are in the process, to move them toward the Lord Jesus Christ.
In Acts, the 10th chapter, if you want to turn there a moment, verse 38. It tells us what Jesus did. Jesus was the example for you and me regarding this matter. Wherever he went, he touched lives. He wasn't always preaching and teaching, but he was continually ministering to individuals, touching lives. Remember the day that he came and, and, and Lazarus, uh, or rather uh, Zacchaeus, wanted to see him, that little short man, and he climbed up in the tree because he couldn't see over the people's heads, so he climbed in the tree and Jesus was walking by and he knew that Zacchaeus was up there. And he said, Zacchaeus, come on down. I want to go into your house and I want to talk with you. And Zacchaeus came down and Jesus just talked to him, touched his life and changed it. He was doing that all the time. And it tells us here how he did it. Notice, verse 38. This is talking about Jesus. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. Now I'd like to suggest to you that that is the job description for a worker. Not for a preacher necessarily or a teacher, but for a worker. It says, first of all, that God anointed Jesus. Now, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ this morning as your personal Savior, God has given to you the Holy Spirit. You have been gifted with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is ready to anoint you every time you want to express the message of Jesus. Every time you want to do what a worker should do and touch a life, God anoints you for his work. He's promised that. You have the Holy Spirit. He wants to use you. He wants to anoint you. He wants to empower you to touch lives. That's God's purpose. That's God's plan. The second thing it says about Jesus here, it says how he went around doing good. Doing good opens doors, folks. You do an act of kindness for somebody, and it opens a door. You'd be surprised how a small thing like greeting a waitress or a waiter in a restaurant with a smile and a kind word, how they respond to that. See, most of the time they're just being ordered around. And all of a sudden here's somebody that's kind enough to smile and let them know they're interested in them. I've had many opportunities to drop a word, just a seed, in the life of a waiter or a waitress because they've responded to an act of kindness. Then you have to be sure you leave a fair tip, of course. Doing good, just doing something 
nice for somebody can open the door. And then it says the third thing. He went about healing all who were under the power of the devil. You say, wait a minute, George. Now, wait a minute. That's getting, that's getting big league there. That's big time. I'm not sure I can get into that. Yeah, you can. Notice what it says. All who were under the power of the devil. Remember we said people are harassed and distressed? That's being under the power of the enemy. The enemy, the enemy is the one who deceives people. It says in, in Re Revelation 10, uh, 12, 9, he is the deceiver of the brethren. And so he deceives people. And they're out trying to find answers somewhere else. They're under his influence. Remember what we said earlier in James 5.16? You pray with someone, they confess their need, and it says healing can take place. That's what it's talking about here. Not necessarily physical healing, though God does that too. It's talking about spiritual healing that can come when I'm willing to take the time to listen and to pray with someone. In my counseling, I found very often that out of the hour that I spend with somebody, 50 minutes of it will be spent listening. Just listening. Asking questions, keeping the person going, and listening. And as they talk, many times their thoughts clear up and disentangle themselves. And then we pray together. And as they leave, they say, Boy, George, that was so helpful. Your counsel was so good. Well, I didn't say anything. I just listened and helped them work their way through and talk their way through some of their own struggles. And then we prayed. And God says when you do that, it can bring healing. And then the last thing it says about Jesus, and God was with him. My friend, God is with you. He is with you. In Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, it says, Let your way of life be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. He's with you, just as he was with his son. And what he wants is a willingness on our part to be workers, to do what he's asked us to do. 1 Peter 3.15 says, Be ready always to give an answer to everyone that asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Be ready always to give an answer for the hope People say, how come you, you, you don't get so discouraged when these things happen? It's because of the hope I have in the Lord Jesus. We tell them that. We share that with them. We take advantage of those opportunities as workers in the harvest, in that part of the world in which he had placed you and me. When Paul was still Saul of Tarsus, and he was on the road to Damascus. You remember the story. And suddenly a light appeared from heaven, so bright that it blinded him temporarily until God healed him. 
and it knocked him off his horse. And a voice said, Paul, Paul, why? Why are you doing what you're doing? And Paul said, who are you, Lord? Who are you? And he said, I am Jesus of Nazareth. And you're fighting me. You're fighting me. And then Paul turned and he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Well, that's all God wants us to ask. As you go into this next week, as a worker in the harvest field, just that little question, Lord, what do you want me to do? Where can I touch a life and move them a little closer to the Lord Jesus? Now, I want you to do something for me. <clears throat> As you listen to the words of this little song, very simple little hymn written by a missionary in Latin America. If you are willing, now listen carefully, I'm not asking you to make big commitments here. But if you are willing to be a worker, just to be a worker, and to be willing to say, Lord, what do you want me to do as a worker? I don't know what it is. I don't know how it will come about. But if you're willing to do that, just to say that, what do you want me to do? I want to be a worker. I want you to use whatever you've given me in any way you can. As I sing this little chorus or this little hymn, just stand, will you, and join me. Lord Jesus, take this life of mine. I give to thee my all. Thy spirit has made plain to me thy earnest call. Lord, send me, oh, send me forth, I pray. The need is great, thy call I will obey. Thy love compels me, I must go. see these who are standing. You see the potential of these workers touching a life. Granted, Father, may this city feel the impact of workers who are willing to be used. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.